Um, just before we started this podcast, which is just now, uh, we were talking about trying to trace back the history of this uh, engagement of the right with left-wing um, strategies. But I think um, there is something specific um, happening in the latest years, uh, which, because Miguel and I come from the noise scene, uh, and there was a lot of kind of transgressive type of um, strategies being used in that in the you know in the two thousands, I guess remember in the seventies and the eighties, but I think after the crisis, uh, something started to change, and then things that were seen just as transgressive or funny, the meaning. Uh, Changed very much because the conditions changed radically, and uh, and the political um, scene was um, things that were supposed to be, you know, like tongue in cheek. Politically, they were becoming uh, real. People were becoming more and more fascist. We, you know, it, there was an increasing kind of fascism going. So. Would you be able to situate where the changes that you are kind of dealing in your text, uh, for third text, where does it start that kind of change in the notion of transgression? I mean, I remember stuff from like the German noise scene from the 90s, like Sigillum S and so on, like the Cologne fascist. <laughs> label, mm. but then there is. I mean, even if you look at something like Tochnet Aleph in Berlin, who, which is a leftist, or as far as I know, a leftist um, noise label, then people like Artur Smievsky are represented on that label. And I mean, that exactly is, I think, where the question of transgression in something like noise um, intersects with what Anna and me were addressing in the Text of Sukunz article, because um, the problem and this also goes back to the question of the history of the, I don't know, unlucky interference of leftism and right-wing politics, is this idea of transgression as a form of self-liberation, and mostly male heterosexual self-liberation. To have this, this sort of um, structure of thinking also and articulating it against something like a state or against the fascist state and so on, but then thinking of oneself as what has to be liberated and who has to be liberated. And this is something, if you look at, there are lots of examples from the German politics and literature scene from 1968 of people who were very revolutionary at the time and who were writing a lot about sexual transgression, also in really progressive ways, um, and who now uh, were part, are part of Pegida and moved totally to the right. And I would say part of this is is because um, their politics were simply one of self-liberation and of transgression. And they were, this is why I said fascist state, they were going on against like the remains of fascism in Germany, which never ceased to exist. Um, but in that sense, they were never self-problematizing. Like they were never seeing themselves as part of the structure that reproduced them, them within their status and privilege within that state. Um, but only went against the parents and the grandparents as the idea of like this is evil. So you have that 
repeated today in artistic scenes which think of themselves as artists and thus like art and think of art as in and of itself liberating and uh, in and of itself good or like something to be affirmed and so when um, when privilege is not when one's own privilege is not the starting point of an understanding of self-abolition that is connected to transgression then transgression just becomes a form of aggression because it's just acting out there is a long tradition right of this uh, mimicry uh, of uh, um, you know, if one understands fascism as a movement that is not a movement uh, of the masses, but actually a movement against the masses, uh, one uh, can also like uh, see why there would be the need to actually mimic the strategies of the left, then kind of like inflect them with a certain twist or, you know, like with a certain distortion. Uh, and I think this is something that you can already see in the early 20th century and it's of course like something that uh, um, uh, recurs in, you know, at several points in history. Uh, about transgression, I think, okay, like to, because I don't want to make like this into uh, half an hour uh, digression to, to, you know, like remain situated in our um, contemporary moment. I would say that uh, it, it was always a very limited strategy, as in, in terms of like uh, what transgression can accomplish politically. And uh, all of these, um, let's say, meaning production devices like transgression or irony, uh, they are always ambivalent towards power. There was, there is always, or they always express a certain position of ambivalence. And um, because in, in a way uh, they allow you to minimize the object that you're dealing with or whilst also like maximizing your sense of self-contentment or superiority you know like so uh, they they are also like very individuated positions you know they are completely contrary or they work against collective organizing because of course like the uh, I mean the, the whole thing about irony is this kind of like uh, um, yeah, like individuated and uh, an individual uh, perception, or you know, like the, the kick that you get out of uh, being wittier than your opponent, right? Um, so I would say that uh, uh, you know, like if you also consider humor as something that has a lot to do, or it's very uh, predicated on group formation. And you know, like the the, the way groups uh, um, congregate and uh, recognize each other as um, members or elements that are in the in inner circle, and they are also you know, like humor is of course also like a tool to exclude, and it's always used as a tool to exclude others. Um, you can a little a little bit see how you know, like all this all of this coheres into a way of actually exerting power and exerting power over others, you know, as what Karsten was already, what said already, as in as a, it's a form of aggression, it's a form of social aggression. And to me, you know, like, I, I think you, you, you can understand this well when, for instance, you have these artworks that are uh, extremely offensive. And okay, we don't even need to talk about artworks. We can talk about the, the Mohammed cartoons, for instance. Uh, you have something that is extremely offensive, that is meant to hurt. And then you say, uh, basically like the premise is, if you don't think this is ironic, 
uh, you're backward and uncivilized and uh, and basically you're a savage and you are not a proper uh, element uh, of uh, you know like uh, polite uh, civil bourgeois society you know so basically you're you're really like creating a um, an invisible color line there you know like uh, that uh, excludes some while including others uh, and then you claim that this is an universal judgment and universalism always crowds out others you know that's the whole point of universalism is to crowd out others so um, I mean this would be like my take on it uh, that um, when you feel that you can arrogate to yourself this position of saying how is something to be understood you know like when you say this is to be understood as ironic uh, you are already engaging in something that is extremely aggressive. Yeah, because it's depersonalizing. No, because it's because it assumes that with you constituting the objective form of perceptivity with which this should be met with, you are identified with that objectivity and no longer appear as a person who situates him or herself within it. Yeah, and it's also basically saying that uh, um, we are not only dictating what humor is supposed to be, but we are also dictating what uh, uh, membership into civilized society takes, right? And what it takes is to for you to, um, yeah, basically toughen up, uh, uh, take all the microaggressions we throw your way, well, not only the micro but also the macro and uh, and, and yeah and uh, and pretend that you're something you're not pretend that you're someone you're not uh, assimilate you know it's basically I mean there's no other word for it it's real white supremacist eurocentric or eurocentric or western western centric position uh, no, I was trying to recapitulate uh, Martin's question. If if you uh, see something, if you recognize that something occurred, maybe between uh, the huge economic crisis of 2008-2016, like the election of Trump, etc., that transpasses this this uh, kind of. Uh, uh, invisible boundary between, yeah, uh, doing internal jokes or or being inside this inner circle that you can trace back to black metal whatsoever to the current situation in which shit posting aggressions uh, is, is is a basic currency uh, in today's. Uh, internet subcultures, uh, small eco chambers for the far right. This this current situation that we are living is something occurred, and the paradigm is is no longer the same as it was maybe in the early two thousands. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, in part also because, I mean, self similarity. I mean, like Anna was saying about which position do you speak from and which position do you make jokes from this understanding of a self-similarity that can ironically divest from itself but always return was always a privilege and was always a means of power but this self-privilege has become um, 
it's it's less and less available for less and less people because of the death of liberalism or because of what I think like Commune magazine is totally right to call the death of liberalism um, because of this disidentification of liberalism with itself and the failure of liberalism to reproduce itself and the catastrophic present it produces um, exactly those people who before were privileged via birth to be self-similar or to to understand themselves as self-similar rather um, do feel that they have been tricked out of that privilege and do feel that like their lives becoming more and more inconsistent because of the um, death of liberalism um, has to be turned towards someone and so as other voices become more visible and people who are like do not speak from a position of um, assumed self-similarity become more and more articulate in public space those who deem themselves self-sufficient are going on attack mode in a sense of like why have I lost my sense of, of self-similarity and why are you suddenly speaking I think it's this I mean I think part of yeah. what changed is that relation no, I, I think it's super interesting to look at it from um, a more historical perspective because um, Denise Ferreira da Silva she has this uh, super interesting uh, uh, text in which she says that uh, uh, decolonial, no sorry, post-colonial theory was perceived in the West as the death of the author and it was framed as the death of the author so basically um, the way certain claims are perceived always entails a great deal of distortion and uh, I would say that this is what's happening now. It's what's happening now is that uh, um, there is an ongoing process of de-Westernization, and uh, it is perceived by a certain class as a loss of freedom. And uh, and this is it, it's really interesting because of course there is an element of truth to it, of course, but uh, there's also like a great deal of unexamined privilege, as Kirsten was just mentioning. And um, the other thing I would uh, add is that, um, y you know, nihilism, uh, to me, it's really interesting, like, because you just mentioned shit posting and all of these strategies. And, you know, like, of course, like, nihilism always does that. No, it's always about devaluing whatever is a social value. Uh, but then, of course, like, you know, there's uh, Nietzsche, like, uh, describes nihilism as some sort of, like, um, backhanded complement to truth, because, of course, it's still a philosophical position that is completely uh, um, predicated. You know, like it, it's, it only makes sense uh, if you see it as a ne negativization. So, you know, like it's still completely invested in truth, uh, okay. albeit yeah. in a negative way, right? And, and I think this is something that uh, always made me think about what Frederick Jameson said about um, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. But no, honestly, because I always see it as, okay, it's e easier to desire the end of the world than the end of capitalism. And this is what I think we are witnessing, is like for all of these people, and I'm not saying it's a conscious desire, it's a subconscious or unconscious desire, but I think it's for them, it comes much easier to desire the end of the world, which is clearly what is, you know, it's mm -hmm. being articulated in this shitposting. Recently, Curtis Jarvin uh, said like last week or something like that in an interview. Oh, that, that one is still around. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> 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 
Yeah, unfortunately, yeah, and he's gaining more and more attention from different areas. And he said that Fed posting, are you familiar with this term? No, no. So apparently a Fed poster is who openly calls for violence against others and encourages like to break the law and all these guys nowadays with the old black with the Black Lives Matter movement, these people that they are looking for an actual confrontation. So um, he said that any sort of antagonism towards the current system isn't actually an antagonism. So the system is subsuming back into it. So it's reinforcing the system we have. So he advocates for a cultivation of detachment, like that remind me of these very 50s ideas of, of being cool, being detached, <coughs> and that it's ironic at the same time. But I was surprised that he was saying, actually, you are losing your time in this battle, uh, arguing for an actual belligerent attitude towards the the left or the woke society. You should remain detached from that kind of behavior. You you want us to comment? <laughs> uh, well, I, I mean, it was just a. I mean, sure, you can say like, let's sit that one out. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's. If I mean from a concert, like from a classical conservative perspective, I think this is what's happening all over the place. I mean, not as this form of um, <laughs> call for inaction, uh, but rather as I mean, like one knows it from, or like I don't know, from everyday discussions with people which one has like from like the art scene or from like the, the areas one works in when people ask like how long do you think the protests will go on and like not implying that it would be great if they end but like sort of like you can hear the uh, like sort imminent question being like do I have to like do I have to think about it like do I really have to register or can I just like wait what the intellectual stimulus coming out of it will be. Yeah. Um, but I think it's also interesting, I mean, in relation to what Anna said, like about the Jameson quote, that in a way what what is happening right now with Black Lives Matter uh, and what is happening in the US um, sort of makes it necessary to shift that quote, that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of racialization. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And that like one has to and that yeah, I think like it's basically the wages of whiteness, no? Like yeah, exactly. All the value extraction that has been. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, where it becomes interesting in what terms does one think about that that present to engage mm -hmm. with? Like is capital is capital the category one wants to think that from? Or does one try and shift that category because it repeats like the modernization of life and the the um, selective humanization of life, which capital implies. And at the same time, if you look at someone like Sylvia Winter, who doesn't write about capital, but writes about material provisioning, instead that gives a different perspective, which makes it more feasible to think from like, what is racialization, rather than to pose capital and then think about like, what antagonisms come from capital. I think it's, yeah, I don't know, I think it's a, 
Do, so, um, do you think that perhaps the level of oppression that um, racialized, com racialized communities in capitalism suffer makes them have um, broader potential to become conscious of their own kind of uh, oppression or is maybe, um, or I'm just thinking, you know, uh, other kind of, that there is a different relationship, as you said, with liberalism, this I, this maybe form of narcissism that never was able to fully appreciate that kind of privilege that other people had. Do you think that there is uh, the potential there for, uh, well, them is not class uh, or, you know, it's, it would not be class consciousness, but could it then become part of a broader class consciousness? How, how do you see that kind of interrelation? I don't know. I mean, like in a way, I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to. I don't know. Project onto mm. um, onto conscience, <laughs> mm. but like for example, a friend of mine um, who studies in the U.S. Like like within within their structure of study, they now thought about like, how can they be part of, like, how can they be politically um, generative in their own actions? And I think like, this is for me, this is more like where I tried to think this from, like, and how far can I be <laughs> a bit less part of the problem? <laughs> Just mm -hmm. to, like working towards exactly what you're saying, like working towards thinking, like, how can one think this politically? And how is like, what what ways are there to think this politically in relation to one another without going back to like the universalization of what class has become as an orthodox category. Like I don't say that class is not a viable category anymore, but I think like it's situated, like it has to be resituated re in relation to contemporary political struggles and like to prioritize this over the question of racialization is a form of reinstating privilege of um, of speech and well, so it, it's yeah. also now going hand in hand with all this three nationalization yeah. you know like it's it's already part of the political program anyhow mm. but uh, uh, I'm, I'm not ready to give up the question of capital because um, no it's not at all that I'm saying that uh, I think that we need um, a concept of uh, racialization that is not um, uh, uh, simply uh, subsumed by the question of class. Obviously, mm. I think like uh, we need to have, uh, you know, you know, it can't be. And of course, like I, I don't agree with this insistence of classes, like always, like the that which takes uh, primacy over any question of oppression. Uh, but that said, uh, I really think that there is a nexus in between geopolitical situation, you know, like African foreign debt, and then, you know, like police killing black people in the United States or, you know, like in Germany for that matter. And of course, it's also like it's a tragedy that we are, you know, like so much uh, enwrapped in this kind of like uh, uh, imperial, you know, it's like we are always acting inside the space of empire. So, of course, like when I went to the Black Lives Matter demo here. I saw all these people carrying posters saying Trayvon Martin and uh, George Floyd, and uh, and 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 it's great, you know. Like of course you can't uh, uh, talk against it, but on the other hand, um, 
we are still a long way to uh, carrying posters with the name uh, of German victims that were killed by the German police. No, so like this is still uh, a problem. I mean, it's 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 manifests itself in many ways. For instance, I was reading the Portuguese newspapers, and it's really funny because it was like they won Black Lives Matter, yeah. Day five. Oh my God! They want to kill our statues. <laughs> and you know, of course, you know what I mean because you know, like you're, you're we are from Spain. You know, it's like the same in Portugal. It's like every second street, right? <laughs> right. So, uh, of course, you know, and and there's a reckoning that is still, uh, uh, you know, in need to be had, that yeah. uh, never happened. Uh, and of course, people are really, really resisting, resistant to that. Uh, so they are perfectly comfortable talking about race, where it's, uh, it's someone else's issue. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, but um, I lost my train of thought. Sorry. <laughs> what? I lost my train of thought. I, 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 I was I wanted to say something, but I don't remember what it was. Let's maybe I can like uh, if there isn't funny, I like hmm, interesting example of like how German German art scene deals with the current situation. Because in Städel Museum in Frankfurt there is uh, a painting by Gerold Herold, like one of the Kippenberger gang um, painters from 1981. Uh, the title of which I will not quote, but if you go on Städel Museum Digital and go to mm. Georg Herold, it'll come up with the description. And it is an openly racist painting, mm -hmm. uh, which is presented as like a provocation, a form of criticism, of a form of radical gesture. Um, and um, recently, like last week, uh, people were calling up on the museum and were saying like, honestly, I mean, really? Like yeah. you have that on display and think that's a great idea. And they were saying, well, this is artistic freedom, artistic freedom, again. I mean, like, it's just like, like nothing changes. It's like, it's so great that there's Black Lives Matter. And like, here we have some German artists dealing with their side of the story. <laughs> so, oh my god, no. <laughs> so, so, yeah. So, so are you not celebrating German. identity? Well, we are also celebrating yeah, identity. Exactly. What's the problem? Ours is just racist. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah, I guess that's the tricky bit of um, of identity yeah. politics in the sense when but the you know, white, you, you know, that you even have people like Slavo Gizek. Yeah. playing that card as in why can I not be proud of my identity and this is so you know it's just so I, I don't even know what to say I just feel really depressed when I hear those comments because of it you know I mean maybe I mean maybe the best example is the the um, heterosexual pride which is now a thing no, so because it's just this, this. Yeah, it exists, no. and it's 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 amazing because this kind of like absolute lack of. As a, how can you not understand that? Of course, uh, you know, gay pride is a response to shame and shaming, and this shame and shaming cut really deep, and you know, it it basically uh, uh, made so many generations of people like. Uh, becoming completely psychotic and, and so I mean of course you would claim the word pride in order to push back against the shame 
But it's like, if you're heterosexual, I mean, nobody ever shames you for that. I mean, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, even if you're in a totally different situation, if people make jokes about like heterosexuality, then it's at least funny, but it's still the it, order. I mean, like, it's yeah, the order it's of the things. Norm, I mean, you know, that's the like, same thing with like this this conservative argument against identity politics. I mean, one cannot argue against identity politics if one's own identity consists in having the ability to neutralize oneself into not having an identity, mm. but being a universal subject. And I mean, everybody's um, possibility to participate in political mm actions on like a state level or on like a level of visibility yeah. that is not the, a form of protest depends on how much you are individually, um, um, how, ca how much you can by social status and privilege obliterate yourself in the process and make yourself objective. Yeah. But, uh, so that's, is that, is, um, it's interesting because we are talking about the death of liberalism, but at the same time, uh, in uh, depending on what forms of identity politics, it can reinforce this notion of liberalism as if you are that which you've been assigned through the system historically. So that's um, how, on the one hand, acknowledge um, the construction that this implies, and um, because it implies that. You know, they identifying with that kind of uh, subject formation, which, uh, on the one hand, is very easy to understand. On the other hand, is what I presume we want to. I don't know. We, you know, now, I, you know, now if I say we, then it's like, ooh, you know, like what do I mean, you know? But certain overcoming that we don't want to, or we. Once again, you know, like now I'm getting a bit confused. Please, uh, do you have something to say? I just wanted to continue with what I think Kirsten was saying and that I find very funny regarding the norm and performing the norm. And it's the situation in which edgy people for being transgressive, at the end, what they are doing is performing the fucking norm, like having a family, being Catholic, being being what always was perceived as being extremely conservative and non-transgressive. It's like performing the norm. And you can see this as a pattern of behavior, as a commodity nowadays that it's like, it's incredible. So the joke of the pride of being heterosexual mm -hmm. is, is very representative. But, but you know, there, there is something else there, for instance, when I mentioned the Mohammed cartoons or like Charlie Hebdo, all of this uh, weaponization of humor and irony, I think it's really about curating the uh, non-white people that are around you. In the sense yes. that, of course, it does mm -hmm. something, right? It, what it does is uh, it excludes what you would call the underclass, you know, the ones that would take offense. And it includes some. And in this way, you know, this is the racial game that it plays. Uh, it allows into the social control group some non-white people uh, that are white-oriented. You know, so basically, 
uh, and this is a bit like what I would call, you know, like how racism, uh, you know, it's, it's how racism expresses itself in polite society. You know, it's always about culture. You know, like the key word is culture. So, you know, it's never, it, it, it couldn't be uh, expressed in other, any other ways, but it's really, and also individu individualism. Like individualism is really like the expression of racism in liberal circles, because it's always about, um, you know, you have to take personal responsibility and uh, uh, pull yourself by the bootstraps and, uh, you know, like, and, and so like this, this, of course, already like the way you're framing the argument uh, makes it impossible to talk about structural racism, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's just brackets about completely. Yeah, because the individual space of maneuver for those people identified in the racialized terms is minimized to zero. Or like mm -hmm. just to my nieces, or just to mimicry, basically. I was, uh, I had this conversation with students of mine from um, South Korea and, and China, and they were saying that, well, they, they study here uh, in Germany, and, um, and they only have two chances. They have the chance to be totally orientalized and like present this, this as their shtick and like but with that have the chance of like developing mm -hmm. a, a genuinely generative position for themselves or they can um, identify as artists and that means that they have to sort of mimic, make a mimicry to the contemporary versions of modernism which um, is more successful on the art market, for sure, but at the same time leaves no room for development for them within their praxis because it is just ba based on their identification with with something that others that repeatedly backwards and forwards. And so one of them, when we discussed it, was uh, like at the end, like saying, could it be that all contemporary art is narcissism? And it's like, yeah, well, Okay, structurally, <laughs> that's that is totally true because it's based on the idea that you can be um, successfully narcissistic, and like to be successfully narcissistic, you have to either mimic if you're in a racialized position, mimic this narcissism, or you you think you have it by privilege of birth anyway. So. And um, yeah, so I had like that. This is one question that I had previously from the email that I sent. But so the question of universalism. I mean, we have a system that is uh, the most universalizing mm -hmm. mode of production possible, and to overcome it, it will require some form of universal organization. That I think. Uh, the question is, um, do you agree or do you think that the question of universalism itself is at the core of the problem uh, and it cannot be rescued for an emancipatory kind of potential? I, um I find the discussions, uh, for instance, like when people talk about Kant and the categorical imperative as in like uh, every person is entitled to freedom. I, I always find it really interesting how everybody is then uh, basically bending over backwards to reconcile it with the fact that Kant was like so explicitly racist that he even theorized how to punish uh, the black enslaved people uh, by saying that you cannot use the whip on them because their skin is too tough. You have to open a bamboo cane and splice it in four. 
So, I mean, it goes to this detail. It goes to a lot, to a great deal of detail. Um, and, and of course, it's, you know, like, he was also, like, so deeply invested in uh, racialization that he theorized it uh, with Gusto. Uh, um, and, and then, you know, like, you always have this question, how you reconcile that? And uh, the answer is always that these considerations are kind of sub-theoretical, as in this is not part of Kant's philosophy, it's just, you know, <laughs> stuff that he was talking about on the side. Uh, uh, and I think that there's a really easy solution to that problem. Uh, you know, you can simply, um, and, and actually, like, it, this is not my idea, I have to say that I read it already a couple of times, uh, but I don't remember where, so I cannot quote the proper source. Uh, but, you know, basically you can treat the term person as a technical term that, of course, uh, is not capacious enough to accommodate all humans, right? So when Kant says that it's a categorical imperative that all, all persons are entitled to their freedom, uh, and slavery is, of course, like an absolute crime because it goes against this categorical imperative, um, it doesn't include in that category persons, women, and non-white people. So you know, there, you, there you have it. How how it can work? You know, like how universalism can accommodate, um, you know, empire, like plantations, enslavement, uh, all of it, uh, because it was not, it was never meant to be. Uh, universal in the sense that it can uh, uh, include all humans, and and then of course, like you, you have all these arguments that say, like, yeah, you know, like, but then it's only a you know, it's only a matter of make it inclusive. Like, just let's just make it more inclusive, right? So that's the line of argument. But then, you know, like my question is, um, well, how do you define capitalism? Because if you think that capitalism is the tide that rises all boats, yes, then you can. In, you can fantasize that we can just, you know, extend the universalist project to include everyone. But if you think that capitalism is a project uh, in which the development of some is always predicated on the underdevelopment of others, you know, that capitalism is precisely that, you know, it's a web of differentials, but that, in, you know, like, in order to create value, it has to devalue. Uh, then you can always you can also say it's it's impossible. It's just impossible. You know, it's like it's structurally impossible uh, because capitalism necessitates race. Actually, it invests in race as structuring force. Uh, also, geopolitically speaking, right? You know, our development is predicated in their under underdevelopment. Uh, so you know, like for instance. Um, we wouldn't, I mean, I think everyone in Europe now, like, has, uh, you know, what I would call a very reasonable living standard. Uh, and we like to think that this is, you know, how, yeah, I worked really hard, you know, like, I was, I did really well in college. And, you know, like, we like to, as uh, Kirsten was saying, we like to kind of, like, uh, um, narcissistically uh, project this as, like, personal achievement. I mean, this is personal achievement. But actually, it's just the result of like, you know, 500 years of like imperial history and colonization. And we are just reaping the profits. It is what it is. You know, I was just talking with uh, uh, the Dutch Art Institute students and uh, international students pay uh, a great deal of tuition. Uh, and again, you know, like there you have it. It's another wage of whiteness. 
mm. you know, that we have students from all over the world that want to come to study in the Netherlands. So, you know, it's in, in every, every step of the way and in so many little things you're extracting money, you're extract, you're monetizing, uh, you know, like uh, colonial history, you're, you're, you're still reaping profits. I don't know if that answered your question. I mean, in a way, like it means universalism doesn't exist. There no. is no universalism. Yeah. Like universalism is a colonial parochialism that goes on to call itself, yes. call itself universalism. I mean, you can even see if you look at the distinction of like what the term, what the concept of labor, labor is even in Marx, then it is distinct from slave labor and devalues that. And the distinction of the free laborer is that he or she, well, he, he. is not a slave. Yeah. And so the universalism of labor is a colonialist one because it's not thought from slavery. It's not thought from that. It's just thought from distinction of slavery. So I would say, I mean, like there is, like in the way one can't even ask, uh, can there be a better universalism? Because there is no universalism. Might there could maybe be one, but like that would entitle, like that would entail a totally different structure of re-narrating the world. Because like this is, like universalism, as like, in the sense of what the term means today, is a dualism. Is always a dualism, and so universalism isn't the monism it presents itself to be. So one could ask if there could be a monism and I think like there have been like radical political thinkers and also activists who would be working towards a monism, but that's something very different than universalism. Mm -hmm. No, also, uh, uh, you know, just to, to add very briefly, uh, um, I, I think that uh, uh, it always entails a process of synchronization. Then you always have to ask to whose temporality is the entire world or the entire planet being synchronized? No, because the, otherwise, what, what does the universalism mean? You know, if not the form of chronopolitical synchronization. And, yeah, and I am, so, sorry. Yeah, no. no, 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 no. Please continue. No, no, no. <laughs> Actually, I am really interested in this idea that you just mentioned. Uh, yeah, this, I mean, performs a narrative, a chronopolitical mm -hmm. device, but it's difficult for us to understand or to think how to counteract all these forces of disintegration and uh, yeah, fragmentation of a post liberal postmodern world how to counteract this uh, very nuanced um, specific forms of individuation that capitalism provides with a kind of conceptual force that tries to help us in terms of granting equality in cases, very basic cases of injustice and so we need a kind of conceptual tool, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's not that I am talking about or uh, about the term in, in, in its historical context. It's more about the conceptual approach to fight against this 
progression towards like massive disintegration. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I, I think. Oh, sorry. You want to? No, no, no. Go ahead. Um, you know, like I, I've I've been speaking about this like recently, very often. So I I would say, you know, in a way, in a one hand, uh, I think that uh, it's necessary, uh, especially for white Europeans to examine their own positions and examine their own sensitivity or lack thereof uh, towards others and uh, all of that is valuable and valid work. Uh, On the other hand, I'm also like a bit um, fearful that there is too much emphasis at the moment uh, in these questions of how racism expresses itself in interpersonal relations. Because uh, though, this, I mean, this is important, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that this is not important. But there are also like very concrete uh, political questions that need to be addressed and countered and tackled and countered. And for instance, like I still feel that there's a, you know, there is a lack. Uh, when I see, for instance, like the Black Lives Matter protests uh, in the United States, I don't. I, I, of course, there are a lot of figures that uh, talk about this, but in the mainstream, I don't see the protest being bridged with, for instance, like the way uh, the U.S. still treats uh, South America. You know, so um, I think it's really interesting to see how some people can have like a really sound position uh, vis-à-vis you know, like racism in the US, and then one sentence later, they will be saying something to the effect of Chavez is a dictator and we have to remove him. And and so the, there is still, you know, like to me the problem, this is the crux of the matter, is that we have to be able to uh, narrate the continuities between, uh, you know, like racialization at home and imperial violence abroad. Uh, and this is lacking, I find. Uh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, but I mean, no, I think it's interesting, or I think it's important to, to think about this. I mean, like you say, but um, at the same time, I think what, I've, what I'm really impressed by or what I find really interesting in terms of how um, the protests and the marches and the different forms of congregation go on in the US at the moment is that they are sort of actively or seem to be, as far as, I don't know, friends from New York or other places in the US tell me who participate in them, um, that they are constantly struggling to find their form. That it's more that like speaking of the temporalization, that the question is like that in the first place, the question was to counter a form of temporalization of violence Mm -hmm. executed by the police, but being like the enforced violence of the state structure. And from there, like, form a protest which first went up against this one-on-one, but then more and more started to find different re-temporalizations of their own speech, like find different forms of protest in that marches were organized differently, who speaks, at what point changes, 
what the speed checks are, if they're like premeditated or if they're spontaneous, like who answers to who. And I know that this is sort of like a list of like small things, but at the same time, I think it's really important and radical politically to rethink the temporalization of political organization through this, like through like literally finding a voice and then thinking about what that voice means in relation of its historical um, muteness or like being made mute and like or where it was articulate and like how it could be articulated. So I think the questions you propose in relation are really important also in terms of if one re-temporalizes one's own position within power and violence today, then to think about this in relation to something like the US politics in South America um, also means to specify that relation, to not, again, like to not like to not speak to it in a form of universalism, but to say like, so, okay, what is the struggle there? And what is the temporality of the struggle there? And I think this is what I find most impressive about almost interest or generative, I don't know, <laughs> what touches me about um, what's happening there at the moment and what is really not so much happening here. No, absolutely. And also, like, I think that these positions have, uh, have, have already been articulated. I was more talking mm -hmm. about this, uh, you know, CNN and all of this, yeah. like, through the mainstream media that um, um, are now able to yeah, like actually represent like a relatively progressive position in terms of like what last matter, but uh, still, yeah, still don't find any nexus with other types of, you know, with the whole empire question. Yeah, and then the question is like, how long will this position remain sound? Like, because it's a, a position which affirms a present, but if that present changes again, come next November or even before, then oh, they yeah. will reaffirm. I mean, I, I actually believe that, I'm, I hope I'm wrong, but I believe that if Biden wins the election, then everything goes, you know, it's like, if oh, we're well, on the, the project, election. you know, like, we're yeah. not racist anymore. Yeah. It's good now. Did it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, right? Yeah, it doesn't look good. Yeah. yeah. No, that, yeah, that election is a demonstration of the problem of electoral politics to the max. Um, in opposition to electoral politics, or when well, you've been talking about self-abolition, um, I'll be very interested in hearing how do you understand it and uh, yeah, what do you mean exactly by it? I mean, uh, you mentioned that when there is, you know, like um, in the text you also mentioned that there are forms of transgression that go against the self and that uh, is that what you mean by a form of self-abolition, or, or you use it in another specific uh, meaning? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, in a way, I mean, um, the forms which we were talking about in relation to this question in the text were uh, Bataille, Pasolini, I mean, one could add Genie, and, but it's like, it's all the same generation, more or less. I mean, Bataille is a bit older, but, <coughs> but it is, and it's not a... Um, accident. <laughs> it's not an accident that those positions are historical positions. I mean, in a way, um, one could doubt if that is um, a present position, or like it is a position which can be taken out, um, which I would say, or we were discussing, 
one can't, but the question of self-abolition still remains pertinent, of course, but like within the, even within the self-transgressions of someone like Bataille, it has a form of negative heroism. I mean, it has this form of like reinventing the subject as the center of its own self-abolition, which I think is politically a radical, radical, radical move at the point when he's engaging in it, and same with Pasolini, but it depends very much from where one is speaking and from where one starts this process because the process is one of an extreme self-authorization even though it's negative but it's an extreme form of of a process of freedom or autonomy like it, it executes power in a way and so i think um the relationship of transgression to forms which are more liminal than transgression and which are more like within the space of of liminalities um, today make a lot more sense to invest in and to, to think about what liminality can mean because again if one changes shifts the perspective from a question of is universalism possible to is monism possible even if that is not an unproblematic word then the question also is is not is transgression progressive anymore but is what can liminality be today does that make sense and I mean, of course, like I think a lot about, like I, lots of discussions with Andem Franke over the last years over exactly this, who of course has worked a lot on liminality. That's not really my thing. That's yeah, I, I'm, yeah, I'm interested more in this idea of monism and like, in what ways do you find it that it can be um, more progressive or interesting uh, than a dialectical kind of approach in the way that negativity is at the core of this self-referentiality. Uh, isn't it the danger of, I mean, with the monism of basically, I, I'm just thinking, for example, of the recuperation of some Deleuze and Deleuze and you know, Antiodipus, and the kind of way that they, with the appearance of being very radical, then it triggered a lot of conservative thought, you know. So, and you know, like, maybe it's a form of vitalism that, mm -hmm. you know, it's not what you mean by monism, but, you know, if uh, I see certain kind of um, mm -hmm. danger that maybe we could comment on. I mean, I think uh, what Anna is working on speaks a lot to that. I can say something. <laughs> <laughs> I can say something briefly, and then you can take off. I, th I think it's that's certainly true. The, the problem of the main uh, problem of, or like I would say that there are like sort of two extremes of the the <laughs> historical problem of discussing monism as a politically generative alternative is on the one hand vitalism, and on the one other hand cybernetics. I mean, if you if you look at people like uh, Ernst Mach or Alexander Bogdanov, or like who would I look at for uh, heterodox materialisms, then there is um, the moment of an opening within their thinking which wants to refigure receptivity as productivity and not distinguish reception from production. And I think that is, speaking of a radical empiricism that connects them even with someone like Fanon, I would say, or with Winter, because they share this radical empiricism, which also Deleuze, of course, uh, was very apt 
uh, to. Um, then within that, I think there is an opening for a possible monism, but that can only be a praxis. And when it becomes a system, as in like Bogdanov's tectology, for example, or Mach's logical empiricism, then it becomes a systemic structure of capitalizing vitalism. But I think this opening, like, I think this opening is really interesting, like the opening of like how to think a radical empiricism um, that is a materialism. Uh, cybernetics has this really interesting aspect of like uh, um, threading really close to, you know, like basically like the description of motion, motion and change in cybernetics or in the cybernetic model threads close to what you would call like uh, dialectical materialism. Uh, but then it never allows for, you know, like a third position, which would be the position of the synthesis, uh, uh, because it doesn't really, it cannot accommodate antagonism, you know, it's an integrated, it's always an integrated system, we're always operating within an integrated system. Uh, so like some time ago, okay, actually many years ago, I wrote that cybernetics is basically uh, dialectical materialism without the possibility of communism. So basically, it's just uh, uh, something that forecloses the possibility uh, of revolution. Uh, and uh, I think that, um, okay, you know, like, we are still more or less living inside, you know, cybernetics is also like the scientific ideology of neoliberalism. And uh, this is still very much the world we are, you know, like we are, we are living inside this social form. Uh, and um, it tends to uh, fetishize connectivity at the expense of collectivity. There's actually a really interesting text of what the, I think Chobidin wrote about it, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and also, uh, it forecloses any kind of possibility for mobilization and militancy, right? Uh, because uh, the it, it it is it individuates everything, right? It individuates every uh, position, and uh, as such, it makes it impossible. Uh, it, it, it just basically forecloses the political, you know, that's uh, the business, uh, 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 sorry, that's the mission statement of cybernetics, literally. I, I guess I'm fascinated because you mentioned the word communism, and I guess it's like, uh, is it possible to think of communism without universalism? Is it possible to think communism without universalism? Let's hope. Yes. <laughs> you know, because it will mean that, you know, the freedom is, I mean... Absolutely, because those are not the same categories, like universalism is an ontology, or it belongs to an ontological category, or categorization. Mm. And but in practice, if, it's, if it's in practice, um, I mean, at the moment we have a universalism system that unites us in the exchange abstraction, but then at the level of consciousness to verification it divides and generates, you know, this process of individuation. So um, if, you know, so the Adam, if, um, I guess the question is like, what level of individuation are we willing to accept 
in order for basically um, uh, accepting different form of established um, realities, you know, like who will be doing these forms of individuation, you know, I, th I think um, If, I mean, I'm just being extremely crude, I simple. I'm not sure and, and I understood what you're... No, yeah, sorry, uh, it's my fault. <laughs> but if there will be, if communism with a kind of universalizing kind of force, how will you not uh, generate inequality? Is it acceptance, you know, like the, it will need to, in practice, trying to generate form of... Um, Equalizing at the material level. Um, create parity at the level of like self determination, meaning everybody is allowed to self determine, then this would create differentiations, not equality. Yeah, but and there is differentiate like there is a differentiation that is not inequality. There is yes. like inequality is just the synonymous synonymous <laughs> with yeah. differentiation within a capitalist order that um, thinks of itself as being universalism, but is a brutal parochialism. Okay, but would never, um, would not, if we don't go, we, we need to go beyond this brutal parochialism. The question is like, would it entail certain kind of universalizing to get away from? Is there a possibility of having, escaping parochialism without trying to, you know, search towards a kind of um, egalitarian form of society that it connects us at the level of material practice. Yeah, but this connection on the level of material practice would, uh, like you said, generate a form of parity that allows for an individuation. And because it allows for individuation, it can have a form of communality or like a form of communism. But I would say that can only be if the basis of that is not universalization, because like what universe, like what the pre like what the situation in which we find ourselves <laughs> lacks, uh, politically speaking, is I would say not that there is too little universalism, but like there is but too much universalism. It's a false universalism. Yeah, but I don't think that a right universalism is what would be a solution or what like would be, I, I wouldn't hope for a better universalism, but mm. <laughs> I mean, I think this is why I find writings like that of Winter so generative because yeah. when, mm. when she writes about uh, Fanon's category of sociogeny, for example, then that is something which replaces universalism because it doesn't speak mm. from like the truth claim of capitalization but it says well there is something which binds the structure in which we find ourselves materially yeah. and that's the sociogeny of racialization yeah. and so there is like a negative form of community from which all actions have to start but they can of course form i, I would say that they can form a communism but not via universalization also because, <clears throat> you know, like this, I, this, uh, I, I, I feel that there's always like this tendency, like every level the project starts at the moment of proletarianization, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I think that the real challenge is not to get there, right? To fight before you get proletarianized. 
against getting totalitarianized. You know, like this is the struggles of the global south or struggles against, mm-hmm. you know, becoming proletariat, right? Uh, precisely not to be absorbed into the universal, uh, to to remain. Uh, uh, to be to be still able to you know live life uh, in the way you used to without being forced out of the you know without being forced into the city into the slum into the factory you know like uh, so or into the fishing industry or into mm. all of these forms in which uh, all the former peasants of the global south are being absorbed into the you know. Yeah. Uh, planetary proletariat. Yeah. Yeah, so yes, a, I, I mm-hmm. Sorry. I yeah. Just an example. I was like in the new in the new issue of Antnotes. There is this article about the Goldberg Circle. What just you were mentioning before, but never really read. And it's interesting in relation to what you were saying, or I thought it was an interesting read in relation to what you were saying, because it speaks about, it differentiates machine from tool, and it says, well, machinery creates proletarianization, and it creates the proletariat, but that is not an affirmative category. And we cannot take that on as an affirmative category, but we have to redistinguish between machinery and tools in order to have a modal ontology to be able to change that, to regenerate. Uh, to regenerate political materiality away from that. And I think that goes yeah. very much in line. No, yeah, and I would so also add, uh, because I, I was just reading uh, uh, your friend David Lloyd's new book and the representation, and I think that it's a really interesting argument when he puts forth about the, the aesthetics, mm-hmm. and, you know, aesthetics as a category and the aesthetical. Uh, uh, as operating precisely this kind of uh, 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 distinction in between, you know, white and non-white by uh, removing aesthetics from the realm of sensory experience and bringing it, uh, 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 you know, put, placing it under the edges of judgment, right? Mm. And this is necessary if you want to universalize the aesthetic experience because otherwise it will become, it is still, it's completely particular. It's like uh, everybody has their own taste, so that's it. And if you want to uh, uh, universalize this experience, of course, you want to, uh, yeah, you you need this kind of move, you need this kind of like uh, uh, intellectual move, but then of course, this move also entails uh, another move, which is the move uh, that separates between those who are able to enter this realm, those who are able to engage in contemplative experiences, and those who are not. And then, you know, of course, it, it's interesting to see how those things are connected because, of course, like this whole, uh, the, the, all the defenses of, um, you know, all of these discourses that defended enslavement uh, were, they, the argument was always the same. It was always like, uh, uh, well, these people, they are not free anyhow, because they are the slave, they are slaves to their own nature, right? They are not able uh, to, uh, they are not, on, they are not autonomous agents, they are not capable of autonomy. So if they are not capable of autonomy, they are not free, and because they are not free, then they can be enslaved. Mm. You know, so this, this mm. I didn't express myself so um, 
will. No, but uh, my son. Do, do you want to talk about the simulator? <laughs> oh, well. Joke, joke, just joke. It's it was no, a joke, no, no. huh? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you were right at the very beginning that it's. Uh, yeah, it's basically what he and, uh, well, some people want, no? To attract this attention mm. and almost teenager ish attitude. Mm -hmm. Like, look at me, look at me. Like, yeah, but, I can impress your. Yeah, I don't know. But you know, please go ahead. I, I just wanted to say that um, the counter argument to what I just said, or maybe not the counter argument, but a bit of parallel argument, is that I was told a million times over, why are you writing about this? You're just making it worse. And the best way to mm -hmm. deal with this is just ignore it, it will go away. Uh, and then there's this whole. Um, the, this whole rhetorical about the attention economy and how, uh, you know, yeah. every time you operate within an attention economy, uh, every time you thematize something, it just makes it grow, you know, it's a bit like gremlins. Uh, if you, if <laughs> yeah, if you water them, they just yeah. multiply. Uh, and um, I think there's a real lack of understanding in some circles uh, about the distinction between, you know, the attention economy and the actual economy, and and this idea that uh, you know if you just ignore the far right, it will go away magically is just really naive because uh, you know it's just not about you know it's there's a world beyond the world of social media. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, <laughs> and they are there are real economic and political tensions in that world. That will simply not vanish. Mm. Uh, not only that, it's getting worse. It's getting worse. In the United States, I mean, it's just like people worse. are going almost crazy about yeah. it. Yeah, and then the thing is, I mean, like, I like if we don't look in yes. that direction, we can make them go away within our tiny little hearts, mm. and and not that's it. That. But like, but for everybody else, <laughs> they're still there. And so, yeah, sure, like if one has this argument, like within contemporary art, it's like better not write about it, write like about something which is worth it. It's sort of like, well, in a way, art isn't worth it if art doesn't feel itself obliged to think about itself socially and economically. Mm. Because, sure, within the art world, you can make them go away mm. and like no, well, just I treat them as a fashion, but like they are not just that. And like it within, yeah, I don't know, within so many people's lives, like they are very present, twenty-four fucking seven. So yeah. No, I think that's the reason why your your article is yeah. extremely important, and as well the Anna's article mm. that I found, like rereading it now, art washing, neo reaction, and old right, is really really interesting because from the let's call it the left, I think. <laughs> very integrated in the understanding no, of our current times. It's a, it's a big problem because now I feel that there is this kind of like unholy alliance between the far right and what you would call the mainstream conservative, uh, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, you know, it's kind of like the mainstream circles. 
and this happens because they feel that they're coming under pressure, that uh, they are being asked to examine their privilege and their own positions and, and exactly what Carson was saying, that they are being parochialized, right? So they feel that, uh, you know, like they always understood themselves as like occupying the center, as like being the universal. Mm. And now someone else is like making them feel provincial by saying, well, actually there's other viewpoints or there are other perspectives. Uh, maybe you should take that into account. And, and, and you know, again, you know, it's really, I, I wouldn't say, you know, this is a very polite request, mm. right? You're not, <laughs> it, is a very, it is a very polite request. You're not, uh, uh, you know, you're not, uh, uh, you know, it's a bit like uh, there was uh, someone that said it recently um, about the Black Lives Matter protests. This uh, uh, activist said, uh, be happy that black people are fighting for an, for equality. Be happy they don't want revenge. And and this is the thing is like uh, this is a very polite request. Mm -hmm. You know, you should be happy that it's all that is being asked of you. Mm. And yet, um, yeah, it's more, there is a very combative narcissism mm -hmm. that uh, uh, you know like surges in response to these pressures. And uh, uh, I think that it, it's really, you know, like the, the, the whole, the articulation of this discourse really revolves around this question of freedom, mm, yes. uh, artistic freedom, mm. freedom of speech. Uh, and this uh, is what you have freedom. now everywhere, sorry, yeah. in like in German conservative newspapers, yes. but also in some art magazines. Who now start to say, "Oh, this is about the freedom of art, and we do actually speak to our enemies, and like we have to speak to the reactionary people." And they're like, "Well, actually, you only speak to reactionary people <laughs> because <laughs> those are your comrades." Uh, and so to call this freedom is just exactly defending privilege and calling the freedom of art up for it. And I mean, there's every no, sense it, it, to in Germany, against the freedom of art. Yeah, in Germany in particular, it's hilarious because yeah. uh, it's never about, for instance, the boycott, divest, and sanctions movement and the freedom to dissent, right? Oof. It's never about yeah. that freedom. It's never about, you know, you know, with the Akhilin Member case, with yeah. Balitha, mm. with all of these cases. There was never, ever, ever a moment in which one of these art publications actually platformed this question and said, yes, you know, like, this is also about freedom, no? Like, we have to defend this freedom. We have to defend this uh, freedom to political dissent. No, it's never about this freedom. Uh, so it's, it's, of course, it's, it's about a very narrow form of freedom. It's really, you know, honestly, it's really about... It's about the freedom, freedom to narcissism. Yeah, it's the yeah. freedom to yeah. harm. And the, you know, it's this is really like a, a, a struggle between two conceptions or two conceptualizations of freedom. It's like the freedom to harm and the freedom from harm. You know, like I want to be free from harm. They want to be free to harm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's also, I mean, again, like a difference in the position, like from where you are forced to live your life that within like bourgeois subjectivity, um, bourgeois subjectivity is based on anxiety like based on the anxiety to be like taken away the freedom or the property or whatever that distinguishes you as a bourgeois subject yeah. whereas um, the lives of, of those people who are not humanized by bourgeois subjectivity but are dehumanized by that structure live a life in violence I mean mm -hmm. in structural violence and this difference yeah. between like always pertaining to fear uh, whereas on the other side there is perpetual violence is 
Yeah. No, and then also like of course this uh, this very mendacious move of always claiming to be the victim. You know, mm. as in uh, you're always being victimized. You're always the victim of like censorship, of no platforming, of uh, of this, of that, and whatnot. Uh, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Just one funny last question. Because, uh, should have Marlene Marlin Carpenter been in the text or not? Uh, Merlin. <laughs> uh, was Merlin in the text at some point? No, he's not. No, 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 I know he is not in the final version. I was just asking myself if he was in the earlier I'm not, I'm, I'm not, not really sure. sure. I, I mean, like, he did this show in New York. Did you hear about the show in New York, which he did just before the that shutdown? That people painted like that. Yeah. yeah. Well, people as in know. another artist who is discussed in our article. It's uh, <laughs> it was a green splash in the Boyd <laughs> Rice. No. no. Was it? No. No, no, the last Friedrich artist who we discussed in our article, like, he came to the oh. opening and wrote stuff on the painting to reassert. And yeah, I think I mean I think it's an interesting discussion to 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 see like what Merlin's conceptual opening amounts to when because he did this show in New York at Rina Spallings where he put on canvases and put paint in the middle and didn't paint in the canvases but like um, proposed to the opening audience that they should paint on the canvases and he said that he didn't even think people would do it, that people would just think like this is obscene and idiotic and like what the fuck. Um, but people did. And like the Lower East Side art scene was very articulate about what it's interested in and what it was was like misogynist jokes, racist jokes and, and so on. I mean like you would you would think like in the end it was kind of like a very successful show because it demonstrated that a scene that deems itself extremely progressive when it comes down to it. It does like wall drawings, which make, make yeah. which make all the kinds of humor which Anna was talking about at the beginning. So yeah, but you know this is the thing because then people would say, oh, you, you don't have a sense of humor, and it's like, no, I just don't have your sense of humor. You mm -hmm. know, as in like again, you know, yeah. like this question of the universal, as in it is not universal, clearly not. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, and and basically, you just want to impose uh, your own world to others. Uh, yeah, mm. especially with with humor, it's a really interesting move because, of course, like uh, uh, you know, misogynist jokes are clearly meant uh, to enforce a certain type of sexuality. You know, it's they are really meant to enforce uh, a certain modality of sexual interaction, and uh, and you're just supposed to laugh at it. But uh, but this is kind of like you know and, and even if I you know like even saying it I know that will elicit this kind of like uh, 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 wrong response because you know like of course like you know like we are all now debating rape and rape culture but uh, what is constantly left out is like uh, uh, within within the partnership right. You know, like as uh, you know, like the very uh, uh, sexual demeanor uh, of uh, heterosexual couples mm. is never included in the conversation, mm. and uh, and of course, like all of these misogynistic jokes exist precisely to enforce a certain type uh, of sexuality uh, to make women feel 
that uh, they are unfuckable uh, if they don't find this universal funny and sexy and you know like whatever. So. <laughs> so in the show, like huh? the downtown art yeah. scene proved to be at the center of society, mm -hmm. for real.